Happy Wednesday. What is up, everyone? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders to truly understand how this movement came to be, where we got started, where we are right now, where we're going, kind of all the different forks and facets and all the the the, the wackiness that we meet along the way. And it's really, uh, you guys are in for a treat. It's my pleasure to have today Laura Shin on the show. Laura, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you have an amazing book out that's really has taken the whole crypto world by storm, really the whole world by storm. Like everyone now used to be people talk to me about Bitcoin billionaires, and now they're talking about the cryptopians, idealism, greed, lies, and the making of the first big cryptocurrency craze. And really, from all the reviews that I had had heard about it so far, and I'm excited to read it right after doing this show, is that you've really documented everything so perfectly. And at the same time, you uncovered things like the, the Dow hacker and, and some of these uh, uh, kind of nuanced situations that happened with the Ethereum Foundation. You also, at the same time, you had gotten into the space. You were a former senior editor at Forbes. You were really the first mainstream journalist to cover crypto full-time. Not just like, hey, can you cover crypto? But like, you're a full-time crypto journalist. You, you, you have an amazing podcast, uh, Unchained, that uh, a lot of people really like too. And I love having podcasters. We're like the last independent media podcasters. Like we control <laughs> our distribution. We're the la- Unless we're, we're selling to, to a company, we're the last independent media. And I love it. Um, and you've done, done TED Talks and you've written and, and spoken. You're very much, you know what was great about your book? you're very much a part of the Bitcoin and the crypto community. You weren't writing it as like an outsider kind of looking in. So you, I think you very well understood kind of all that things. But thank you for coming on Untold Stories today. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for that really generous and wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it from someone like you who really understands the space and has been in it far longer than I have. So I really appreciate that. Do you, do you remember... I have such a, it's like almost like a naive question, but I'm genuinely curious, like what was the first piece that you were asked to write about crypto or was it Bitcoin at the time? Um, so the way I came to cover Bitcoin and and what was then called Bitcoin and blockchain, it, w- it will be seven years ago in like two weeks, um, was that I was doing the Forbes FinTech 50 list and the reporter and I who were heading it up, we just split it into different categories and I took the category of digital currencies And so I don't remember the first article I wrote, but I remember like all the first interviews were just, I was interviewing a whole bunch of what were then Bitcoin or blockchain companies to learn about the space, to figure out like what belongs on the list and what doesn't. And um, hilariously, because it was that blockchain, not Bitcoin era, um, I didn't put Coinbase on the list. (laughs) Big miss on my part. Yeah. And I... um, uh, wrote a huge feature about Chain, which was this enterprise blockchain company that Chain. was, yeah, it was a big feature in Forbes magazine. It had a cover line and um, that also kind of, you know, didn't go anywhere. I mean, they had investment from like Visa and NASDAQ and like all these big names. And so it just seemed like since everyone was saying blockchain, not Bitcoin, <laughs> that was I thought that that's what was going to happen. And I and my sources turned out to be completely wrong. <laughs> You uh, uh, really got in at such a pivotal time during uh, like history because history is obviously still being written. The whole space is only what like Satoshi disappeared, I think, 11 years ago today or something like that. 
So you're writing about history as it's happening. How did you know when to start and when to finish? Did you did you kind of put it all together? What gave you the idea to it's such a huge undertaking? Yeah. So this book, um, so I started I for I I started the proposal for this book in like March or April of 2018. And the idea that I had was a book to explain how the ICO craze happened. And um, so I kind of had an ending point because by then, you know, we knew like this peak was in January. And so like my idea was like, that would be kind of like where the book ended. Um, Or I don't know if I knew that much, but like pretty quickly, once I started reporting, I understood that that's what I was working toward. So it wasn't you know, I didn't have to worry about the fact that the tech was changing and new developments were happening in terms of my book coverage. Um, really the main challenge was just like, you know, because by the time I was writing it, it was like years after a lot of these events, it was just kind of corroborating what people were saying, you know, were their memories faulty, um, you know, finding evidence to back things up and getting people to reveal things to me that they didn't always want to reveal because, some of it was um, negative stuff about people who are very wealthy. And so, you know, that was a little bit of a challenge. Um, and then really just piecing it all together because they were, you know, this is like a decentralized community. So when you open the book, the first thing I have is a list of all the characters and it's 50 people. And this is after I pared it down. <laughs> so, you know, it was like just a sprawling, sprawling story. So like just kind of condensing it. And even then the, the number one criticism I hear is like, there's still too much detail, but this is like literally after I cut it back. There are so many forks that happen along the way and so many people you can almost like, well, this guy and you can digress or you can get, get into all these different crazy places. So staying on like a linear path is a very difficult thing to do. There's so many casting characters and I don't, and you know, I do this all the time. I jump all over the place, but um, recently I forget his last name, but, but Virgil, he was sentenced to, to a bunch of time in prison. And I'm a little bit sensitive to stories like that because um, you know, of, of my situation. And like, I always almost look back to, to the intentions of people. And he had, he had uh, gone on to North Korea and given like a, a a talk about, about, I'm not really sure about Bitcoin or about Ethereum. And he ended up getting arrested for like violating sanctions and, and some other things like that, which is a very, very serious crime. Kind of going back to the crazy wackiness of the Ethereum foundation, the Bitcoin foundation, the ICO craze, the people that you, that you wrote about, the people that you spoke to. Do you like feel that people were calculating their moves as they were going through? Or was it just like, we're riding this wave. We don't know what's going on. We're just, we're just, who knows what the next day will bring. So it depended on the person. And also I'm sure even for those people who were more calculating that it was still a mix, right? Because um, the way things happen, like Vitalik sent out his white paper for Ethereum on the day that Bitcoin crossed $1,000 for the first time. And so it was this wow. kind of moment in history where people kind of had the sense like, oh, we can make money from this. We're getting wealthy off this. And so there was this kind of like, just like this buzz in the air. And so a lot of people who had dollar signs in their eyes were attracted to Vitalik and to the idea of Ethereum because, you know, they had gotten into Bitcoin when it was like a dollar or whatever. Now it was a thousand dollars. So they'd seen a thousand X gains and they were just like, oh, maybe if I can do the same thing with Ethereum, I can a thousand X what, you know, I already did in Bitcoin or whatever. So there were definitely people who were more self-interested, but then as time went on, 
some of those people ended up kind of being like either kicked out or like, you know, pushed to the side or whatever. So I'm sure for some of them, like they might've had ideas in the beginning and they were calculating in this way or that way, but then their plans may not have worked out because they weren't always in control. So, you know, it's a mixture, but definitely I would say there were certain people who were more calculating. And unfortunately, I do think Vitalik was one of the people who was not and um, that resulted in a lot of conflicts that lasted for years in Ethereum. I still, from 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 my very few years of being close with Vitalik, there was a 2011 to late 2013 period where I spoke to Vitalik probably every other day. We were in a Skype group with a bunch of other people. And this was like Vitalik Buterin, comma, Bitcoin magazine. And Vitalik was just the guy who wrote extremely well and digested things very, very quickly. And I didn't take him any more serious. He was just like one of us because we were all misfits and geeks and weirdos, right? In in that Skype, I missed that that one group. And I remember one time Vitalik came to New York and I felt like a camaraderie because I grew up in a Jewish community and I had not done lobster before. And he had not ever done lobster before too. So him and I were all sitting there learning how to like take apart a lobster on Lobster Mondays. It was like the weirdest thing ever. But you know, your story starts like almost the day I got arrested. So the day I got arrested was the day of the Bitcoin conference in Miami where Vitalik walked on stage and announced Ethereum. And that and right. Mo walked on stage a few hours later or before and said, I don't know where Charlie is. Like we don't no one knows where he is. So it's such a I really am excited because you really picked up like the day that my history ended. Like I literally went from one day I was speaking at a conference to the next day I couldn't speak to anyone outside of my family home in Brooklyn, like anyone disappeared off the face of the earth. So it was yeah. such a, I remember with Vitalik though, he, the first time I'd ever heard the word Ethereum was a post that he had made that said, like, I, I remember it was like, he wanted to do like the smart contracts on top of Bitcoin or something. That was like the precursor kind of, and he, and people like really slammed him down. They didn't like that idea. And then all of a sudden he gets with Anthony and the rest of the group and everyone. And Anthony was a great guy. I met Anthony through the Bitcoin Association and uh, or whatever it was called at the time in Argentina, like two months before my arrest. And it's so crazy how that story just completely picks up. And I had no idea what was happening till I get out of jail and I'm on my way to work like a year and a half later in the in the restaurant. And I'm at this point, like never coming back to the Bitcoin space. I'm like, I'm a dishwasher now. And I hear on the radio. Ethereum has been hacked by a DAO hacker or something like that. I'm like NPR. And I'm like, what is going on? So what happened in those two years? Please fill me in. Wow. Okay. Well, you're going to read all about it in my book, but essentially, so he introduced it at Bitcoin Miami and that week also saw people kind of like jockeying for position in terms of their titles uh, in Ethereum. And there were more negotiations kind of after that week. And then things finally got finalized about who the official co-founders would be like within the month after. But then um, they all met later in Toronto at something called the Bitcoin Expo. And that was supposedly this conference about Bitcoin. But um, Anthony actually like kind of uh, is the one who set it up. And people tell me that he set it up to be basically a marketing vehicle for Ethereum. So when you uh, walked into the sponsor area, Ethereum was front and center and Vitalik gave a talk. I think it might've been one of the most popular talks, if not the most popular, I, I forgot what, what that person said about that. 
Um, and during that week in uh, Decentral, which was Anthony's, uh, well, it might've been called Bitcoin Decentral at the time, yeah. his kind of like co-working space in Toronto, people again were like kind of vying for position and arguing over their titles, over how people should get paid, like all this stuff. And um, over time, over the next few months, there was um, a lot of tension between the two camps that eventually became known as the business guys and the devs, meaning the developers. And so ultimately um, it just came to a head and it wasn't only just that there was this tension around that, but people who had been living in the house with Charles really uh, did not like a lot of his behavior. Probably the number one biggest one is the fact that he seemed to tell a lot of tall tales. Uh, you will read about that's it in the Charles. book because some of them are but That's pretty... Charles. He tells long stories. Like I remember every time I ask him a question, that's kind of how he talks. Yeah. 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 But, uh, I can't uh, wait just to read how, Yeah. Just how much you know, resemblance they bear to reality is, you know, most people think it's pretty minimal. So, um, yeah, you, you'll have to read what some, you know, uh, what some of that was about. But the point is, you know, it got to this point where these people were like, we cannot have him in Ethereum anymore. So um, between like, you know, all, I mean, there were, there were like multiple different kinds of tension in the house, but it really came down to the, those two things. Like people either didn't want Charles there or there was this conflict between the business guys and the developers. So it all came to head and what you've probably heard uh, has been affectionately called the Game of Thrones Day in Ethereum, <laughs> where um, Charles and then Amir Shetrit, who uh, was another original co-founder, um, basically, so so they, so they technically what happened was they disbanded all the leadership and then they just didn't invite those two people back. <laughs> um, so they, they will protest you if you say like, oh, when you get kicked out of Ethereum and they were like, we didn't get kicked out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so um, after that, then there was this period where they were um, kind of getting ready to launch the project. And during that time, this, this was all stuff that wasn't known before my book. I mean, some of the Red Wedding Game of Thrones Day stuff was known, but um, there, you know, was like a lot of kind of uh, internal, um, how would you put it, tension over building the clients that were uh, released on launch day roughly a year later. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention at that point, sorry, after the Game of Thrones Day, they did the crowd sale. And there was a whole other drama about the money. And some people felt that uh, Joe Lubin, who uh, they had thought they had tasked with selling the Bitcoins to turn it into fiat currency, was resisting. Oh, yeah. And so they ended up losing like roughly half of the dollar value of what they had raised. It was $18 million if you had converted all the Bitcoin on the days uh, the Bitcoin had come in. And then by the end, they only got like 9 million of it. So there, there was a whole drama around that. <laughs> and then, yes, during the building period, there was a lot of tension. Um, I, I won't go too much in that. People just need to read the book. This, no, they, like I said, yeah. it's stuff that hasn't been known before. People are going to stop um, listening to the show now and go just listen to the book now. Thank <laughs> you. I lost all my listeners. <laughs> um, but yeah, then after the launch, uh, there wasn't like a ton of activity until the Dow. The Dow really was like the next big. Oh, no, actually, after that. Sorry, I forgot. After that begins a years long period of drama around the executive director of the Ethereum Foundation. Um, she got uh, introduced to the community pretty much right when the network launched. And almost from day one, there was drama and that lasted for like almost three years. Wow. 
So I can fill you in on like the doubt. A little <laughs> bit of it. Yeah, we didn't even get to so many things. But you actually, I had to write, I sometimes had to write down questions that I, as you're talking. What was it like? Because uh, people are going to go over and, and get the and get the the audiobook now, and they're going to hear your voice. What was that like narrating the your own your own ebook? Oh my god, it was so fun. I loved it. Did I, you do voiceover work before or anything like that? No, no, I hadn't. Um, in fact, actually, uh, what what happened was we started recording it, and then um, you know my uh, sound engineer was giving me tips on how to narrate. And so by the end, I definitely felt like I was much better than I had been at the beginning. So then we went back and like re-recorded the beginning. <laughs> that's usually, um, that's usually what happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that actually helps me with my podcast now because um, every week on Friday, I read what's called the weekly news recap where I just hit like the top headlines. So people kind of know what happened. And um, I do feel that now when I narrate that, I do a better job. What are some tips? Oh, uh, just to speak more slowly than you would naturally in real life, because especially when you're reading, um, I don't know, like, like, have you ever had someone read something to you and then they're reading it so fast you can barely comprehend it? Yeah. Sometimes I listen to people on other podcasts and I'm like, no idea, or even TV shows or actors or whatever. Um, right. So since I'm reading the script to me, I'm like digesting the information this other way. But to someone who's only listening and who doesn't have the words in front of them, it's just much easier for them if I just go a little bit more slowly. So yeah, so now I, I try to do that when I do the weekly news recap. I wanted to comment on what you said earlier. The Bitcoin and Ethereum equally, hundreds of years from now, even decades from now, will be seen as some of the most important inventions of our lifetimes, of our generations, of our century, of our of our everything. Like it's it's that important because what Satoshi did was wasn't some magical invention, right? He amalgamated like decades of of other very small inventions, technologies, and kind of put them all together and proposed an idea, had written a code, and solved the Byzantine general's problem. Figured out fault tolerance and figured out how to take like risk that was in people would charge a lot of money for, and almost like liquefy that risk and do a lot of other things. And then when very, very soon after, a few years later, when Ethereum was launched, it really took this idea and what everything I just said wasn't even conceived yet. With Bitcoin, it was just money. No one had ever thought of the smart computer, the smart contract, these things, right? So you had this amazing brand new invention technology that had founders where Bitcoin had no founder. Well, you had a founder that almost like disappeared. You could say we were the early people, but we weren't founders, the early people. We were not, we're so far from founders. No, you'll never hear someone call themselves like founder of Bitcoin or, or like, it just, it's like impossible. Satoshi was the founder. So you have, and that like kind of is how Bitcoin and its community is governed a little bit. And you had Ethereum and its founders and people will read your book you know, 10, 20 years from now, look back. And I know people are looking at your book now and saying, we need to make sure we launch our technology or our company maybe differently or the same, or we need to just take notes from how Ethereum was launched. And I don't think like, I don't, just from my limited knowledge, like, I don't look back at any of those people and say, well, like, something they had bad intentions or some someone did anything and i know you didn't either uh, but people do look back now on some of these 
and, and I'm kind of getting into like a maximalism thing. Just because I saw it on my own Twitter this morning on my way to work, I saw people like fighting about Ethereum uh, proof of stake versus proof of working. And I'm like, these are so ch- such completely different things. Where did maximalism even come from? When did it start? Because it didn't exist that day I got arrested. Well, that's a tough question. I, so I have not done like a, you know, a solid investigation into this, but from writing my book, I would say I first started noticing it in the spring before Ethereum launched. So this spring of 2015, um, I came across some blog posts that were saying things like, you know, Ethereum claims it's going to do smart contracts, but, you know, just wait until it launches. Like, you'll find out that it's not true. Oh, wow. Or um, they'll, they would say that like Ethereum was a security. It was a scam. They would say like, oh, you know, like Anthony Diorio, Shady, um, Joe Lubin, he's with Goldman Sachs. Like, the, like there was just a lot of this kind of like FUD about Ethereum. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, these were just comments I was seeing online or blog posts I was seeing online. So I don't really know who those people were, but, uh, to me, obviously it, it did seem that they were probably Bitcoiners who, um, you know, either just because of how much they believed in Bitcoin, they were deriding Ethereum. Um, but you know, a lot of them were just like, uh, basically talking, talking shit about Ethereum without, um, it, it having even launched. So they were just, there were, there were no facts to back up what they were saying. It was just like, yeah, um, just classic. Yeah. we're scared of the other thing. So we're going to make up some, some, some fear, uncertainty and doubt on it. We're just going to start making things up. Yeah. You definitely, I mean, you definitely saw that, saw that with even some of the, the, like those name coins and some of those other stuff too, but there's, those are all like kind of complimenting Bitcoin. Um, yeah. I, you're just you just it's jogging my memory and bringing back so many fun memories and stories down down the road but um all right so getting back to the timeline of things so you had this this crazy ico craze you know it was a lot of positive but a lot of negative it was a lot of craziness a lot of people lost a lot of money you saw the lawsuits that came out of that still coming out of that sec doj it's, it was crazy and people then and i kind of looked at it and people then and still do today looked at it as like this thing that um almost needed to happen to give us the world of DeFi and nfts that we have today do you agree with that well uh people might know that i am a big fan of carlotta perez's book um technological revolutions and financial capital i think it's called and in that book she basically analyzes kind of every major new technology that has come out since like, I forget, it's like, it goes back centuries. And she analyzes how each technological revolution happens. And she basically says that all of them start with this like massive speculative period. And that what, so so the way it works is like the technology gets introduced and, you know, it's like nascent. It's like, it's like barely anything, but it sets off this speculative mania. And so all this money gets pumped into the system And then um, even though the technology really is not mature, you can't really do much with it. Even And even if a lot of people lose a lot of money on those speculative investments, what ends up happening is that just the fact that it gets the money in the system then allows for this period where the technology gets built and becomes more mature. And then at a certain point, it's kind of like that, uh, what's that called? Like the crossing the chasm thing. I forget the- It's like an enlightenment or something. Yeah, they call it now. They call it something. 
Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't how remember. How long do those do those years last? Is it like a 10 or 100, closer to 100 year period or something? Yeah, I, I read a book years ago, so I don't I remember. To, that's the but key, yeah, though. It, it's not 100. It's like more like, yeah, like I forget, 10 or 20-ish, okay. five, maybe even as little as five. I forget. Uh, but the point, and, and it's probably not the same for every single one, because not every single revolution is like the same exact playbook. But yeah, she was able to like pull out these patterns. Um, but then, yeah, what ends up happening is that then um, once it kind of gets a little bit more established, then like real adoption starts. And then there's this kind of like golden period where there's like all this innovation, people are excited, they're like, get, you know, getting into it. And then it kind of like reaches full maturity. And then the downsides of that technology become apparent. And then, um, you know, it sort of gets ossified and it's like trying to maintain relevance. Oh. And um, yeah, but like whatever the the downsides are of it, kind of like begin to have their negative effects on society. And then like people kind of turn against it. But then usually there's some other technology that's like a baby at that point that like can kind of address yeah. it or like, yeah. And so she she talks about how this, ha it's actually a short book if you do want to read it. It's really interesting. But, um, you know, part of me is like, oh, so this will probably happen to blockchain technology at some point, like decades from now. Um, and yeah, if so, I'll cover that as well. And, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll see, you know, what the next new thing is and I'll be able to cover that too. So the, is it going to be all related to, to this kind of new technology, Bitcoin and blockchain technology, or you think we're looking at like, you know, inventing some new, um, you know, viral antidote to, to something or solving a crazy Yeah, cure? no, I think they, if I remember correctly, they all tend to be somewhat related Okay. Um, I mean, obviously there's a shift from, you know, kind of industrial revolution to like our era of technology. But if you think about it, you know, this came out like the internet is part and parcel of blockchain technology. So, um, you know, even though there's, they're different in some respects, like, you know, blockchain technology builds on the internet. So you've been, you've been covering, so you've been covering, uh, uh Bitcoin and crypto as a journalist for a long time. You have your podcast unchained, uh, the book Cryptopians. You really understand this industry very well. I I can ask you things like, like I want to ask you things like, what kind of common traits do you see? Do you see with 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 all these you know all these different type of people and founders in the space? But more relevantly, with Twitter and Elon Musk, I want to talk about like our community. How Twitter became almost you had you had IRC and then you had the Bitcoin Talk forums and then you had our Bitcoin and then you had Twitter. And Twitter became the town square for all of crypto before it became the town square for the rest of the internet. We knew Twitter. In fact, that's why Jack became like a big Bitcoiner because so early on, it became such an early on thing. How do you feel about the whole, like, just, I'm just curious, like your whole Elon Musk Twitter situation, like you, we both derive a part of our income from our followings and our, and our fans on Twitter. So it's like, what are we looking at in the future now? Oh gosh. Uh, do you think about it? It's crazy. So I just read an article about this morning, but um, the main takeaways I had were um, it might be positive for Doge. We already did see that the price of Doge did pump on the day. It, it dropped afterward, but still, you know, he has begun accepting Doge at Tesla for certain things. So who knows? He might be compelled to incorporate it into Twitter somehow. It could be good for Bitcoin because he's put Bitcoin on the balance sheets at Tesla and SpaceX. True story. So yeah, and he personally owns it. So who knows, you know, what he might do uh, with Twitter in terms of Bitcoin. 
and and obviously Bitcoin or uh, Twitter already has Bitcoin tipping that it rolled out. Oh, if he put Bitcoin and, on the balance sheet of Twitter, that would be crazy. <laughs> but it, I mean, it wouldn't be that crazy considering now it's been how how many companies that have done that. So some of the other things were like I noticed that he said that he wanted to authenticate all humans. And obviously, so it would have, so that is interesting because like crypto Twitter is full of anons. So that's like a little kind of against the grain. So I'm not sure, you know, what would happen. Um, it might, it might really change the tenor of crypto Twitter. <laughs> if but everybody it creates had to this, be- this two class system that's almost understood. It's like, if you're anon, you're different than someone who is not like verified a blue check mark, but just someone who is like a real name. And when you're in conversations, it's almost like you're an underdog if you're the Anon. So you have to be like a better at your debate. So it creates this like give and take that I like. Yeah, yeah. But also I do feel that Anons probably can say a lot of things that like people with their real identity can't say. So in that regard, like it sort of helps them. <laughs> um, but then the other thing that I was thinking about was, you know, Polygon is going to be rolling out this like ZK uh, what is it? ZK, ZK rollups? ZK, ZK No, it's not rollup, but um, it's or it's some kind of zero knowledge proof based identity solution uh, in a few months. So I was a little bit like, well, you know, if Elon really uh, wants to do this kind of like authenticating people thing, but do it in a way where people can remain anonymous, then he could use that because like Twitter would then would be able to verify what people's identity was, but then they could still be anon on the platform. So um, that was like another thing. Um, I, it's so funny. I literally wrote this article yesterday. I can't remember what my other takeaways were, but there were two others. There's a, what's the deal with like authenticating humans? There was another project recently that raised like a lot of, like a hundred million dollars in VC funding. They had those orbs, Worldcoin. They were trying to like authenticate. Oh, Didn't you hear about this? They yeah, were but they to were like doing it with a biometric, human. yeah, a biometric scan of your iris, which um, I think people found creepy. I understand why, what the benefits are, but talk about what, you know, the cons are and what scares me. Like you can do decentralized voting and real-time voting, although there is an argument to be made that like one CPU, one vote won't work. And so like one person, one vote kind of won't work either because simply people don't have time or don't want the time to deal with certain types of things that need to be voted on. But that's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, there's this whole, like, that's the end game, right? To be able to like, take your identity, authenticate it in one place through maybe we call like an originator, a decentralized originator. And then that originator can then prove that you authenticated yourself. And then you're authenticated across the whole world. But then like, if you can somehow, if that authentic, if that originator, his, his reputation as an originator, so he can remain anonymous. It's like, you can do all these different, like, and I was thinking yesterday, dude, I have the weirdest conversations. How come no one yet has taken the whole U.S. democratic system and put it on a blockchain? Like created different tiers of level of citizen, senator, congressperson, and all these different things as NFTs that could do certain things on the chain. You can have the justice system and regulators. You can do the whole thing as an experiment. It would be super cool. Wait, wait, but then would it be any old random person could buy that NFT and be that person? Or would it be for each of the the people that actually... I don't know. So you can do two things. You can like do some sort of like airdrop system where but the idea would be like a social experiment. So you'd have this like new world of people that want to join it. And the democratic system would be like a social experiment. So what if like democracy works really, really well? The promise, the problem is, is sometimes the, the going in and out of transparent mechanisms 
whether it's like politics or money. So it's like, what if everything, just how the whole process works? But that's another conversation too. You mean if it all was transparent? Yeah. Oh gosh, no, I, nobody's going to sign up for that. <laughs> I love these social experiments. That's kind of why I got into, into Bitcoin in the first place. Yeah, no, I agree. But yeah, I, certain things, you know, like the world coin thing didn't gain adoption for a reason. No, that died. So. <laughs> that died very quickly. It died before it even lived. <laughs> and you write about it in your book. There was this big, uh, uh, the first big hack about in crypto was the DAO, the DAO hacker and you act the DAO hack, decentralized autonomous organization. And now DAOs are all over the place. Like uh, they've resurged. And actually you, we kind of just talked about that. Um, the DAO, you actually uncovered the DAO hacker in writing the book. What's What happened there? Yeah, so this is a crazy story. So I, you know, went to write the book and the whole time I was trying to figure out who did this hack. And I spent years working on this, uh, did a lot of interviews. And the way that I began was just by kind of like picking up on this one investigation that began at that time, which was, Someone had identified some suspicious transactions on Poloniex. Uh, it was somebody who worked at Poloniex. And so I uh, found out that information and then I found out what was really happening with those transactions. Like I interviewed a bunch of different people about those. Yeah. Then I talked to all the people involved in those transactions and you know, found out from them like what they were doing with the DAO, what their interest in it was, like talked to them about whether or not they had participated in a hack of it as a group. And when I went to write the book, I basically presented all the information. Like I, I kind of showed, you know, I did my homework. I finished out this investigation. Like here's the reason why they fell under suspicion. Here's what was actually happening with the transactions. Here are the statements from them when I interviewed them from a book, that kind of thing. Um, I wrote it in a way where uh, people would just make their own conclusion. Yeah. Like I didn't tell them what to think about it or anything. Um, but uh it late on late in the process of finishing the book. So when you write a book, basically you do kind of like three passes where it's like the final changes in the book. And um, with each progressive pass, you're supposed to make fewer and fewer changes. So after, or I was in the middle of the second pass. So at this point, I'm probably supposed to make like maybe a hundred changes to the whole book. And um, one of my sources who had been involved in rescuing the money from the Dow reached out. His name was Alex Vandesand. And he um, is Brazilian. And he said, hey, the Brazilian federal government um, opened an investigation into the Dow back in 2016. And by extension, they opened it into me as well. And he was like, they want to interview me now. And I was thinking that I should commission a report to exonerate myself. And like the, re the reports are kind of expensive. So he was thinking like, who else could use this information? So he thought, oh, maybe Laura would be interested in it. So he got a discount on the report. And then I gave this firm oh, this like so credit, cool. yeah, coin firm credit in my book. And so actually I, I'm just realizing I didn't like explain what the debt, do you think people know what Wait, the debt was said, or should I? We should definitely I, explain that, but you said coin firm. Yeah. Wasn't that a, like an encyclopedia for like physical Bitcoins or was that something else? Oh, that's something. No, okay. no. Yeah. No. Okay. Wait, so yeah. Like give yeah, why not? So I'll backtrack. I'll give everybody the the down low on what the DAO was and how the hack happened. And then we'll fast forward again to my investigation. So um, the DAO uh, kind of got its start in April of 2016. So it was at a point when Ethereum was maybe like nine months old-ish or so. And um, there wasn't a lot happening on Ethereum. It's not like today where we have, you know, DeFi yeah. and DAOs and NFTs and 
you know, just all kinds of things, ERC, uh, you know, um, ERC 20 tokens, not, nothing like that. So um, at that time, the DAO was really like the only thing happening on Ethereum. And it became the largest crowdfunded project in history, which was incredible because if, if you think Ethereum is difficult to work with now, which I, I do, then like think about what it was like to try to work with Ethereum oh, back in yeah. 2016. And so the fact that they raised $140 million, became the largest crowdfunding project in history, you know, at that point was like incredible. And of course, within like a few short weeks, it gets hacked. And the reason this was problematic is because the DAO had actually garnered 15% of all ETH. <laughs> so then once the hacker had hacked by 31% of the ether in the DAO, he had 5% of all ETH. Oh and so God. people, I mean, this was like the only, in my opinion, the only existential crisis in Ethereum and people were, you know, freaking out. What ends up happening is that, you know, they have like some different options, but as they're like trying to figure it all out, as they keep going, they realize, oh, that one's not going to work. That one's not going to work. And so then ultimately what they're left with is what is known as the nuclear option or what they were then calling the nuclear option, which was do a hard fork of Ethereum. And uh, through the hard fork, they would basically kind of erase the fact that the DAO happened. Basically what they would do is they would take all the money from the DAO and then little baby DAOs, because there were these like child DAOs that you could make from it. And they would just move all that money over to something called the withdrawal contract. And then people could send back in their DAO tokens and get back their ether. So um, they ended up doing this hard fork, but you know, the reason this hard fork was um, kind of like nerve wracking for them is because it was known as, yeah, it was a contentious hard fork hard fork. And a lot of people disagreed with why the, with the fact that they were doing this. You know, their argument was, look, this is a problem with the DAO. It's not a problem with Ethereum. Ethereum worked as intended. So don't do something that is dangerous to Ethereum just to rescue the number one most popular app on Ethereum. And so what ended up happening is after the hard fork, probably some of these people who disagreed with, um, you know, what they had done, they were trying to keep the original chain alive. And eventually Poloniex, who, which was the most popular venue for trading yeah. ETH, um, you know, uh, announced trading pairs for Ethereum Classic. And so I now that. uh, that's, this gave birth to what I like to call Ethereum's evil twin, Ethereum Classic. And on Ethereum Classic, the hacker still had 3.6 million ETH. And, you know, that was real money. It wasn't like a ton of money because obviously Ethereum Classic had less of value, less value than Ethereum, but still it was something. But, you know, since it was a new coin, they couldn't really turn it into real money. So what they began doing is they began using Shapeshift to convert that to Bitcoin. And the reason they were using Shapeshift is because Shapeshift uh, was an exchange, but it did not take personally identifying information. What it did was it would allow you to transact, but everything would be transparent. And then on top of that, it would limit you so that you could only transact in um, amounts of $2,500 or less. And they were only crypto. They never did dollars. That's why they were able to like, we're just only staying crypto. These exactly. were earlier years. So that was like the understood, like it's okay at the time. Even regular yeah. crypto, crypto exchanges didn't even, even collect ID. Exactly. So this person, because obviously $2,500 or less is, um, you know, really small. So they were doing like a bunch of, a bunch of transactions. So now fast forward to me and Alex, this report that we looked at was one in which we were examining those cash out transactions. And we noticed that they tended to take place 
between a time that mapped onto an Asian morning to night schedule. And, you know, these people that I'd already put in the book and like been interviewing them about their involvement in the Dow, they were all based in Europe. So I was kind of like, oh, wait, these are like Asian cash out times. And we checked their social media and, you know, they appeared to be online during like European hours. So the thing is that I had gotten a customer service email that the Dow attacker had sent to Shapeshift while they were preparing the coins for their attack. And I knew from that customer service email that this person spoke fluent English. And I could see it because it wasn't even just like perfect English sentences where you might say like, I'm going to the store, do you want anything? But it was like, going to the store, want anything? Like it was like shorthand, which is like another level of fluency. It's like real fluency. Yeah. So I was like, okay, Asian cash out times, but fluent in English. So I had been working with chain analysis on a lot of things uh, for the book. And I sent the information that I had to them. And meanwhile, I had asked the publisher if I could have two more weeks to, um, you know, go over this new report that I had. And they were like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, this, the book is nearly done. Like you don't have time. And <laughs> so then meanwhile, I was hounding Chainalysis, at, like harassing them. And I was like, oh my God, they're never, ever going to speak to me again. <laughs> like these people hate me now. <laughs> like I was like stressed out because I just kept emailing them. No response. Finally. Um, they get in touch with me. And this is when I find out, okay, they can demix uh, at least some Wasabi transactions. And Wasabi is like yeah. a way that you kind of mix Bitcoin transactions to kind of obscure the trail. And so um, eventually we saw that after the DAO attacker had sent some of their Bitcoins through these Wasabi mixers, that on the other end, they had sent some of the Bitcoins to these different exchanges, four different exchanges. And obviously exchanges have privacy policies, but for one of the exchanges, um, they did reveal to a source what happened to those coins and they'd been converted to Grin, which is a privacy coin mm. and withdrawn to a Grin node. And the Grin node, the name on the Grin node was grin.toby.ai. And so the person that I believe oh. was behind the DAO attack is somebody named Toby Honish. He used Toby AI as his alias pretty much everywhere, like Reddit, That's Twitter, so GitHub medium, yeah, et cetera. But the thing is, we so we didn't know that if, at first, but what we did see was that the same IP address that had this grid node also had Bitcoin Lightning nodes. And one of those Bitcoin Lightning nodes was named 10X. And Toby Honish is the co-founder of 10X. So then once we had this identity on that end, I went back and I investigated what was Toby Honish doing at the time of the DAO attack. He was super into the DAO. He identified problems with the DAO. He reached out to the creators of the DAO saying, hey, there are these flaws, you need to fix them. And they said, oh, okay, we recognize that, but they're not urgent, so we'll do it later. Oh, wow. So then he begins writing these blog posts on Medium saying, like, there are these flaws and like exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point kind of thing. And um, eventually, actually, one of the flaws that he wrote about is what did force Ethereum to hard fork. And so, um, yeah, after the hard, sorry, after the hack, but before the hard fork, he was tweeting things that were like pro letting the hacker keep their money and anti the hard fork. So, you know, when I, I had, you know, I had uh, kind of good evidence. Oh, and then later I got the email address that they had on that account at the exchange. And it it ended in at Toby.ai, which is one of his domain names. And then on top of that, Toby speaks fluent English, but he, at least at that time, was based in Singapore. So uh, everything matched up, you it know, at works. the time of the Dow, on the other end of the cash outs, you know, the profile, like everything. 
and yeah, since then, nobody has, you know, been like, you're wrong. Um, so I, I feel very strongly, but I should mention, he did send me a statement saying your statement and conclusion is factually inaccurate. And then he offered to give me more details if I wanted them. But when I asked for them, he did not respond. I gave him the deadline multiple times, no response. Yeah. And then when we published the Forbes article, again, we sent more fact-checking, uh, more information, more questions, no response. I was following all this on, on Twitter because I follow you in real time. And this was just, this was crazy. I'm, I was very impressed by how everything came to light. And it's a good thing because you need to, at the end of the day, it's about privacy, not anonymity. And being able to authenticate yourself across the world in a private way is very important. And and so, you know, rooting out these, these uh, uh, scams and frauds is one of the most important things that you can do. And the fact that you did it kind of, perceptually from from the the rest of the world from within you did us a very positive service because that's a very important thing that we're rooting out our own evils uh so thank Thanks. you that i think it's part of the culture of 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 this whole industry like do you think do you think that the kind of culture going back to you what you said about the that book about technologies did all those technologies have their cultures that help propel them to where they need to be. Do you think that there's an importance or a need even for our culture? Because I've had guests, like I have guests, Bitcoin OGs who believe and will say on this show, who will say, we won't have Bitcoin conferences in the future. It's like we had internet conferences in the nineties. We don't have internet conferences now. Why are we gonna have Bitcoin conferences? But then there were those believe that the culture like myself is so important. So I live for that. I preach it every day on the show. What do you think about that? I do agree with you. I think culture is really important to crypto. I see this very much as, uh, yeah, like a community-driven kind of thing. So, um, you know, right now, just with the way I'm seeing DeFi and DAOs and NFTs take off, like a lot of it does seem that it's like kind of like fueled by this culture. And it's interesting because um, even like some of these DAOs, you know, like like Friends with Benefits, it's just a social club. And yet the VCs wanted to invest in that. <laughs> and like, I find that fascinating. And I do think it's kind of says something about the importance of culture in the future and like how, um, basically, I think I guess this is the way that um, we'll be able to own our cultural objects in the future and that creators will be able to benefit from their cultural objects on the internet in a way that they have not been able to previously. This is something that it's it's not like new, right? It's not something over the past 10 or 20 years, I think going, if you look back and look at history over thousands of years, the ability to like take in not just culture, but value that you've not been able to like create a immediate monetary gain from, or like a value to the world that the gain is not like right now or in cash flow terms. Now there's an incentivization to do so because you can like represent that on the internet. Other people can it's such a beautiful thing. Thank you for, for bringing it all together. And, and we, we didn't even scratch the surface of everything, but I want everyone to check out the book. It's called The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Hello, you have it right there. I, can I get a, a signed copy? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. And uh, I hope everyone listens to your podcast, Unchained. It's an amazing show. Uh, there aren't very many good crypto podcasts out there. So, you know, we're 
Thank you for doing that too. Thanks. That's so um, funny. I actually think there are a lot of, there are definitely a lot more and uh, better quality than there were uh, how many years ago. I don't, I don't even remember. Like when I started in 26, 2016. So. I need to go listen to them, to them more. I need to go check out more of the shows. I, I know the few that I know, but uh, that's good. <laughs> that makes me, that makes me really happy. Go listen to everyone else's show. Everyone have a great day. I'm joking. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate Thanks, your time. Thanks, Charlie. This was super fun. Thanks.